we've been on this. This is actually from a seminar that we were asked to do at the Alliance Renewal Church's annual conference on what Grace Christian Fellowship is doing to do outreach at Wright State University campus in these neighborhoods and at the school nearby. And so uh, chapter two of that seminar, we've been looking at that in some detail. And uh, chapter two is seven critical concepts of all Grace Christian Fellowship outreaches. And we have to have all of these working all of the time. And it's important that everyone, you know, we we are trying to get past the model uh, beginning in the second, third, fourth century, a split between what was called the clergy-laity split began to develop, where Christians began for the first time to see the work of the ministry as being done by hired clergy. But in the New Testament times, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers were actually to do the work of the ministry of serving the church to equip them to do the work of the ministry. So, as a Christian, everyone is called to be a fisher of men. That's even our first point. In our, in, uh, you can't follow Jesus and not be intentionally becoming a better fisher of men. Part of following Jesus is to memorize scriptures, to, uh, to do what it takes to become more equipped to fish for men. Uh, as you, f- you can only take people as far as you go yourself. Every seed brings forth its own kind. The best thing you can do if you have children is have a great marriage. What The quality of your marriage will affect your children. If you can't uh, have that, which sometimes it's not always able, you're not always able to do that, if you still work on yourself and grow in the Lord and, and grow in your character and grow in wisdom and holiness and true righteousness and true wisdom, uh, you will impart that to your children, whether you know it or not. Every seed brings forth its own kind. You are constantly making the people in your life like you. And Jesus' call is to follow him first. Notice that the order is follow him. Then you become a fisher of men. Because what you're fishing them into is more Christ-likeness. To the degree you are Christ-like, to that degree you can fish. Character is always the most important issue in the Bible over everything else. There's nothing that comes short of the of us being conformed to the character of God. That's why Paul tells an immature church in 1 Corinthians 11, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. But in Ephesians 5.1, he tells a mature church, be an imitator of God. As you progress in the Lord, you never stop imitating As a young Christian, you often imitate the best Christian characteristics of your brothers and sisters in the community that you're part of, your disciple, or things like that. But gradually, you're imitating God himself uh, in your character and life more more and more directly. Uh, So I'm not going to review everything. I just reviewed part uh, point one a little bit and actually put a couple twists on it that we hadn't brought out. I'm going to jump over to where we left off, which is on the back side of the page. Uh, point number five, Paul's modus operandi. Uh, I've got it subtitled here, targeting, targeting uh, strategic ponds. All throughout this, I have in brackets things, um, most of my turn to italics eventually, but you don't have that copy. Uh, a community of disciples, a discipling community, uh, you know, a, a serving community, a welcoming community. Many of these points call us to be a certain type of Christian community, okay? So what we're trying to form here is not your average church. It's We're trying to get back to a more New Testament model for the church. And if you read the epistles, they don't even make any sense to uh, the average church today in the sense of uh, see you on Sunday and midweek Bible service. If most fellowship of the church is happening on the church campus, at the church's official meetings, and there's not lots of things happening behind the scenes in outreach venues and home groups and <coughs> neighborhoods, <coughs> then, then many of the things that Paul's saying to New Testament churches don't actually make any sense. You know, how can you, uh, you know, tell, he tells in Philippians 4, Euodia and Sintachi to live more in harmony together. These were two prominent women in the Philippian church today 
if they if uh, two women in the church were having difficulty with each other they would just sit further apart and be involved in situation ministries in the church that that the the other one gets involved in less <laughs> and uh, so forth instead of working it out so that they could minister together so Paul's modus operandi we requires us to become an army a militant community now that's uh, very difficult in modern times with what we call radical individualism radical individualism uh, doesn't make for armies well uh, you don't win many battles if every, if everyone runs in the battle and does their own thing so that becomes quite a uh, quite a journey that we have to take together to learn how to work together and uh, and uh, and strategize together and take commands together and so forth um, first thing about Paul's modus operandi is our concept called rediscovering the pattern you know uh, we have a teaching called rediscovering and restoring his pattern and we deal with the fact that there are patterns all through the bible christ himself calls himself a pattern when we translate into english we use a a, a method called dynamic equivalence so we choose english words for the greek that are more sound more right to our english way of thinking so when jesus calls himself an example in john 13 that sounds right but, he, but that's not the Greek. The Greek, actually, he's saying, I am a pattern. You call me teacher and Lord, I'm your pattern. And I just gave you a pattern of how to love and serve one another when he washed the disciples' feet. Feet, not feet. <laughs> uh, they had feet, but uh, those were uh, previous and later. Um, so... Um, this, this is very important for us to understand. Paul himself set about to do a pattern. And Paul leaves uh, from the Antioch church in Acts 13. And, and let, let me just give you a quick little history of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem. Jesus told them in Luke 24 and Acts 1, don't leave the city. Don't start your ministry till you've received power from on high. Boy, if the church just took that one sentence and took it seriously, it would revolutionize all of Christendom. Don't leave the city. Don't start your ministry until you you're receive power from on high. And he calls it specifically the promise of the Father. And then he defines it. He says, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. And he makes it very clear that what happens in Acts 2 is the pattern of what's supposed to be happen when you receive power from on high. Uh, if you study that thoroughly, you'll see that there that's just in, incontrovertible. Uh, the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, 1 through 4, 1 through 17, whatever you want to stop reading, uh, is the pattern that God intends for every Christian to receive. And you're supposed to have that empowering in order to do the ministry. And that changes it from uh, a ministry of words and persuasiveness into a ministry of demonstration of the Spirit and power. I wish uh, many of you were here Friday night. We had an amazing time, uh, you know, helping a, a guy supernaturally in terms of prayer and, and so forth to get set free. And God undid all kinds of years of what the enemy had done in his life in one hour. And we accomplished more in an hour than we would have in a year or two of counseling. And so, and I'm all for counseling, as you know, but um, I'm all for power encounters that, that change your life. So Paul, uh, in terms of the pattern, you have to actually go back to Mark 14 and Luke 24. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 24. I forget what chapter it is in Luke. Uh, but three times the, the Synoptic Gospels give us what's called the Mount Olivet Discourse. Jesus stands on Mount Olivet. And he, uh, the disciples are pointing out the temple to him. And they say, Lord, what beautiful stones and so forth. And he says, truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. They'll all be overturned. And he talks about how armies will surround Jerusalem. And he says, this generation will not pass away until all this is accomplished. And he died, we don't know actually if he died in 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. The only two years that the Passovers line up with what we do know about church history are those two years. He died in one of those two years. 
And the army surrounded Jerusalem in 67 AD and took it down and fulfilled that prophecy in 70 AD. Now, it's modern evangelicals, because of their sort of anti-history, anti-study the whole Bible thing. Actually, many, many people think that has to do with the end times, but it has nothing to do with the end times. It has everything to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And it's a real key to understanding your the whole New Testament, because when the, when the Spirit was poured out in Acts, a church was formed in Jerusalem. But it was never God's intention for that church to become the model church of the New Testament. They did many things there that no other church in the New Testament did, including they began to sell all their property and put it at the disciples' feet. And so they had no land holdings near Jerusalem. And they practiced a communistic form of community in the sense of a shared purse, that communism always leads to poverty. Okay, every place it's been tried in ancient times, many countries, have, uh, some of the Greek city-states tried socialistic communism. Russia tried socialistic communism. Our government has now moved towards socialistic communism. It will eventually bankrupt this country like it does every other. And uh, it, it always has, it always will. Uh, they tried it in the first century of Plymouth Rock, or the first century, first year of Plymouth Rock, and William Bradford in his of Plymouth Plantation talks about how they went back to each person having their own plot of garden and so forth so that they would be more industrious because when they all had one communal plot, they couldn't get anyone to work very hard and stuff. And so uh, he, uh, he says, we tried this communistic uh, thing the first year, as, and he goes, as if we were smarter than God. He, that's his exact words. And uh, because, of course, thou shalt not steal, the law of the reverse negative means uh, God endorses private property. And you're never going to get anyone to be industrious if they're not working for their own, their family's gain. So in Jerusalem, it is purposely not the model. Because Christ has already prophesied that the Jerusalem church will be gone in a generation. Okay, and we actually know from church history in 68 AD, I forget the name, but there's an actual name for the prophecy, but in worship gathering, someone spoke forth a prophecy that now's the time to leave. All Christians left Jerusalem by 68 AD. None were caught up in the rebellion of Israel against uh, the rebellion of the Jews against the Roman Empire, where Titus, the son of the emperor who later became an emperor, crushed the Jews' rebellion and destroyed Jerusalem and left tore down the temple and left not one stone upon another. There were no Christians caught up in that. Uh, Jesus actually says, if, the, if these days had not been shortened, uh, for, say for the elect and so forth, and that there would have been no time of suffering. If you study, if you read Josephus, he's a historian of that time who was actually in Jerusalem at the time. If you read about any 100 or 150 of his 350 page description of this, no people has suffered like that. It goes beyond what happened in Vicksburg in our Civil War. Uh, Jew killing Jew, trait treacherous trading, people eating their own children because of the depth of the starvation. Uh, it was a, a horrible time, as Jesus had made clear in the, in the Gospels. So I say all that just to say this, that God intentionally moved the model church to Antioch. And so as you follow the book of Acts, you'll see by chapter 11 and 12, some Christians begin to share with the Gentiles. In chapter 10, of course, God makes it clear that the kingdom is for the Gentiles by what Peter does at Cornelius' house. And uh, after that, all sorts of Gentile Christians start to emerge in the churches all through the Roman Empire. Uh, there were some up until that time. From There were Hellenistic Jews, but they were converting to Judaism, then to Christ. And from that point on, they convert directly to Christ and don't have to go through a conversion process to Judaism. And that's the disciples established that once and for all at the first church council in Acts 15. And that's beyond our, our stuff for today. But what, what I do want you to see is that in Acts 13, it says there were prophets and teachers in Antioch. 
when the apostles sent Barnabas in chapter 12 to Antioch to see the great thing that God was doing there and to take some direction of it and, and uh, give it some oversight and so forth, the scripture makes it very clear that Barnabas, when he got there and assessed the situation, he left and went and got Paul in Saudi Arabia and brought him back to Antioch because he realized this is what God set apart Paul for. This is the establishment of the foundational church, of the pattern church, of the church that uh, that God is going to take to the Gentiles, and Paul is the man God has prepared for this. So in Acts 13, you read there are prophets and teachers in Antioch, and it lists five of them, including uh, Barnabas and Paul, Lucius, Mananean, and I think Simon of Niger or something like that. I forget. There's five names total. And it says they were praying and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, that is, he spoke through someone prophetically in that group, set apart Barnabas and Paul to the work I have called them, past tense. That's a very important thing for you to learn in terms of God's model. You will always have a sense uh, and, and you should have a sense confirmed by the leadership in your life that I'm going to focus in on this type of ministry as I grow. You should have that from the very beginning. Uh, in some cases, God won't give you much of that if there's many character challenges ahead of you so that you don't get the cart before the horse. But, uh, you know, from the beginning, just to take an example, from the beginning of the day that John Gray and Lisa uh, walked into our midst, I began to say, God, let's start equipping them for uh, inner city ministry. Because they have a, did I say Lisa Gray? Leah Gray. Lisa Gray. John's got some, some things he hasn't told us about. <laughs> uh, no, so uh, I'm, it goes correct that Leah Gray. And uh, so um, at, after that, Paul goes out and begins to plant churches throughout the Roman world. And he raises up elders according to the pattern they practiced in Antioch. And it makes it very clear that he reported back to Antioch. Even the great apostle Paul reported back to the local church elders that had sent him. That's always the pattern. Local churches give birth to local churches. There, you know, we now do missions through parachurch ministries and we send one couple. I suggest to you that we'll be much more fruitful when a local church sends a whole team of people from the local church that have already functioned and worked and, and served and taught and led worship and casted out demons and healed the sick and preached the gospel together and plant them somewhere. You know, that is our, the model we want to follow. We want to do that. Eventually, there will be a GCFZenia.org and a GCFColumbus.org and uh, maybe gcfosu.org, I don't know. Um, so uh, that's, that's important because, you know, even in a church of 40 people and 100 people, people should be preparing, should have enough faith in God to believe you're going to be the people doing that. And I've got to memorize scripture now, and I've got to embrace the, I have to take the various trials and temptations that God brings into my life and find the grace and power of God to stay godly now. I've got to learn to work in accountability in, in a team now. And I don't really want to see the, the great, great, great anointings of the Holy Spirit, like we, you know, had witness Friday night, come on everyone until we have that kind of teamwork and that kind of character and that kind of knowledge and wisdom among us. So Paul, the first thing you need to be clear of, Paul planted churches according to a pattern, and that pattern included a plurality of elders. We have all kinds of churches today that have a strong senior pastor model. That is not a biblical model, and I wouldn't be involved in that at all, personally. Uh, it's just not. And... Uh, God always rolls up a team of elders who were, for the most part, co-equal, but because the body has one head, one of them was the presiding elder. By around 90 AD, they, in, the, in the New Testament, they used the terms presbyteros and, and episkopos, which are normally translated overseer, which really just mean elder or overseer. Uh, they're used interchangeably. By around 90 AD, the church started to call the head episcopos or the head presbyter the, the episcopos, the bishop. But 
the truth is it was still always a plurality. Uh, over time, more authority got got translated into the in, to the bishop or the episcopos than I think the early church practice, and that I think is wise, frankly. Um, even you know, the more gifted a man is, the more he needs to be surrounded by enough people who can hold him in check and keep an account on him. Everything that has the most potential for good, when twisted, has the most potential for evil. If you don't uh, believe those, just take two biblical examples. One, uh, the person of Lucifer. Lucifer is one of the three archangels at the beginning of Scripture, at the beginning of time, before Scripture, before Genesis. Yet today he's a hideous figure that's so does, uh, wicked and evil and opposed to the purposes of God that, that if you were to meditate too much on him, you would ruin your life. Uh, you know, he's, he's beyond hideous. And so we're not to be ignorant of his schemes, but we're not to spend, uh, you know, Jesus actually gives approbation or approver and gives a compliment to one of the church because they have not known the deep things of Satan, as they're so-called. That's a trap you know, a lot of young Christians get into is they become aware of satanic things and they start studying every little thing. And then before long, you can't eat peanut butter because it's got a crescent moon on the, the on the back of the lay wall or something, you know, and, and you get all weirded out. And uh, so there's a demon right behind the toaster. Don't, you know. So, uh, you know, um, that kind of mentality is a, a bit crazy. All right. So do we get it that there, there is a biblical model pattern church, and it's Antioch. And all the epistles that Paul writes are to churches built on that model, not on the Jerusalem model. God never intended, you, you'll once in a while hear uh, fairly uneducated well-meaning, wonderful Christian people say, oh, we should get back to what they did in Jerusalem and, and not have private houses and private properties and just share our community and so forth and be like the primitive church. Well, that was never God's intention to be the model. That's very clear if you read the scripture on more than just a surface level. Okay, now, second thing about the model is the seed in proper perspective. I have here what Jesus knew of, and Paul knew about generational. People are always talking about generational things. And people are saying, well, you know, we have a situation where today where a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of churches are predominantly over 30 and even in some cases over 50, even in many cases over 50. Uh, that's never God's intention. That's a sign that there's trouble. Because God is always about the seed from Genesis 1 on. In Genesis 1, he establishes the principle that every seed brings forth its own kind. He establishes it for the plants. He establishes it for the animals. And then he establishes it for Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve would bear fruit according to who they were in the image of God and, unfortunately, in their fallenness. Okay? Then Abraham was called to have a seed. And of course, most of us think in terms of Isaac, but Abraham's real seed was Christ. Isaac was, the seed was in Isaac and the promises were confirmed to Isaac and the seed continued to move through Isaac, through Rahab the harlot and David and all sorts of people all the way to Christ. The genealogies are available in Luke 3 and Matthew 1 if you want to see them. The, the Bible is always about the next generation. Moses, we think of Moses' most important ministry as, as bringing the Ten Commandments, as bringing the definition of the covenant of God's people in Exodus 19 before the Ten Commandments come. But his real greatest ministry was in training Joshua. And the greatest thing he did is when the Lord showed him that he would not enter the promised land because of his sins at the, the sin at the rock of Meribah, he, he laid hands and conferred his authority and his anointing on Joshua. And never is laying on of hands ever some, uh, some out-of-context kind of situation. It came because he had trained Joshua for 40 years. We all want instant coffee. Ugh, that's terrible. Uh, uh, you know, we want instant oatmeal. Don't eat instant oatmeal. It's got all kinds of gooer gums and chemicals to make it instant. 
eat the real oatmeal. <laughs> God, God's not in a hurry because he's always about the next generation. The most important thing you'll ever do is not, not just lead people to Christ, because then you can slip back into that decision model, making sinners prayer nonsense, but make disciples who you equip, train, and release as you know, happy is the man whose quiver is full of arrows. You know, your children are like arrows. Happy is the man whose quiver is full because an arrow you point at the enemy to hit the target precisely. You shape the people you disciple to be warriors to take some ground for the kingdom of light. And you, you train them in every way they might get injured in the battle. The reason we stress character, character, character is because if you have any character flaws, it'll take you down after God raises you up. If, if, if I could stand up here and just read a list of the ministries that have been the, the most powerful ministries in the Holy Spirit for the last 115 years that have fallen into sexual immorality, financial immorality, and all sorts of other scandals, uh, major heresies, not just minor little off on this point, but on major things. If I could read that list to us, we would all have to be on our face weeping before the Lord because of the waste of the tens of millions of Christian lives that people being raised up without the character has caused the church. So that's Paul's modus operandi, and uh, he's always about the next generation. So if you read the Bible carefully and you'd make a list, there's about 33 names that are associated with Paul. And it's very clear that some are more like alliances, like Apollos. Paul, in other words, Apollos does not see himself as under Paul, being discipled by Paul, but he sees himself as an apostolic figure who uh, works as a teammate with Paul. So Paul doesn't give him orders, but he does request things of him. But then there's others like Timothy, Titus, Sylvanus, John, Mark, and so forth that he gives orders to. Now, one such one that you need to know about is read the book of Colossians carefully, because that gets into the next aspect. Paul didn't just go randomly. You know, if you read the book of Acts and you put piece together what you can from the epistles, you might get the impression that Paul was just like going here and going there. And then he ran over here and planted a church. You know, some picture of the front of this is a map or something of Rome, Roman Empire. He didn't. He was working a very systematic plan to go to all the cities that were the most strategic cities of, bu of business, commerce, uh, ethnic blends, and most importantly, governmental, uh, the, because Rome had provinces and there were cities like Corinth and Ephesus that were the head of that province. Paul only went to those kinds of cities to establish his churches. Because his goal wasn't just to establish churches, his goal was to establish the kind of churches that would conquer the entire culture of Rome over four or five centuries. People wonder what I, I'm crazy, crazy thing I'm up to. That's what we want. That's what Grace Christian Fellowship's mission is. I want people. I want other churches a hundred years from now to be going. Wow, let's look at what they are doing. And, and that's when they'll start reading our books that are written by someone who's my spiritual grandchild. <laughs> and, uh, and I want them to say, hey, what parts of the model are we missing? Let's actually build according to the model. Because what most churches are doing, uh, no matter if they have, I don't care, I don't care if they have 1,500, 2,000, 5,000 people, if they're not building according to biblical models, in the end, it won't be enough to turn around the slide of our culture. And I think it's crazy to be shooting. It, it, it sounds totally ludicrous for a people of 40 people to be standing up here talking about that. But that's what Jesus was talking about. And he never got beyond 120 followers. Can you imagine a guy who fed 15,000 and 20,000 people who it says that, that in many, if you look closely at some of the passages, it says he healed all who were there and cast demons out of many who were there. 
So there are times when probably 4,000 people got supernaturally healed and demons cast out, yet they didn't get enough understanding to follow Christ. It's because miracles aren't enough. Miracles are just part of what needs to be restored. And when, you know, I guarantee you that whatever newspaper publications there were in Rome were not following Jesus and the disciples. I am, if, 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 if ever they got, came to the attention of the senators and the emperor in Rome, they would have gotten some, yeah, there's this little band that this got this little guru teacher guy, and a lot of people are claiming he's doing miracles, and he's got, you know, some people following around with him. And, uh, and the emperor would have said, well, tell Pontius Pilate if it becomes a problem, deal with it. <laughs> you know, no big deal. Because, you know, the, the eyes of the world never understand what's in the major parts of the news are never the most important things that are going on. Always what God is doing is the most important thing going on. You know, we have two, two young ladies who work for the Crisis Pregnancy Center in our church. I guarantee you the news doesn't think that's one-tenth as important as what it's, what it's really accomplishing. They wouldn't, if, if, if you tried to get some secular news person to look at it, they wouldn't get it. So, with that being said, Paul, in, twice in Colossians, he says, he talks about the gospel that you learn from our brother Epaphras. You know why? Because Paul didn't go to Colossae. He never visited the city. But, it was close enough to some of the cities he was visiting, namely Corinth, that he sent a team of his team there. And he had that team headed up by Epaphras. And I guarantee you, Epaphras wasn't the only guy in the team that went there. I guarantee you there were at least four or five other people who went to Colossae, and they stayed as long as they could until the trouble arose from the Jews who were following them, and it became too dangerous, and they had to leave. Yet Paul feels like he has full spiritual fatherhood in Colossae, enough to write them an authoritative letter that's the word of God. Now, that's important because simply this. People say, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Well, I happen to believe that inner city ministry and, and campus ministry are the two most strategic places we can do ministry. Now, it's my, my hope this summer that we'll put together, we're going to have an elders meeting tonight, hopefully we're talking about this, we're, uh, I'm hoping that we'll be putting together a flyer uh, that's designed to reach families and, and, uh, and with kids and all, and, and just starting, starting here, distribute it in concentric circles uh, all summer long, Huber Heights, Beaver Creek, and so forth. And I do believe that God will, will add to us more and more families with kids and so forth, and that God will use us to help many marriages. However, the university students are the leaders of the future world. Uh, we have a book that if you haven't read, I'd really encourage you to read. It's a reading level is a little more difficult than some, but it's called A Christian Critique of the University. I know that's hard to find, but if you could try to find, because it's it's out of print. But if you can try to find some more of those and get, all right, can we can we still get some of those? It's called a Christian critique of the university, and uh, I know Emily had one part of it she didn't like it. He, she felt he was a little too retreatist, especially in the area of science. But I, I you know, I think it will open up your eyes to the fact that the university system is the most powerful institution in the world today. And it's not some neutral place where there's academic freedom. The university system is thoroughly anti-Christ to the core. And you need to kind of understand that. Uh, but you need to understand that university de degrees open doors. There are many careers developing that you can do very well without a university degree. And I'd encourage you not to fall into what they call the sheepskin psychosis that you have to have a college degree. First, you have to have character. Then you can do anything. And then secondly, you might consider college if it's a necessary step toward the degree to, toward the toward the career you're choosing. 
But uh, and if you have character, you'll do well in college. Um, simple as that. If you're building character, wait. Don't ruin your point average while you're building character. Get get the get the skills, study skills, and study habits, and and steadfastness you need. Get you know, get a job, learn a work ethic, all kind of things like that while while you're get preparing. Because so when you if you do go to college, you need to have great grades. It's stupid to go to college and not at least carry about a 3.5 because it won't open the doors you need it to open. If, you, if you're not ready to get a 3.5, stop going to college until you get yourself ready. But in the meantime, all I'm, you know, that's a little far afield for what I'm just trying to say is the university students are the future leaders in every area of life. The church has kind of retreated into like what the church is all about is just our prayer meetings and our Sunday services and so forth. But the church is actually supposed to be a fortress that equips its people to go out in uh, from the fortress gates on raiding parties to uh, to bring others in. Okay, and all the future business leaders go through the university system. All the future engineers go through the university system. All the future lawyers and politicians go through the university system. So one reason that politicians are so crooked is that most of them are lawyers first. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, <clears throat> let's not go any further with that. But, uh, you know, all the, fi all the future finance uh, people go through the university system. All the future heads of medicine and, and pharmacy companies and so forth, right? University graduates infiltrate and influence the world more than non-university graduates as, as a general rule. And university students have not messed up their marriage. You know, Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, marriage is not a very honorable institution in our culture right now. More than 50% of marriages end up in divorce. And the reason the statistics are 50% is because it takes into account my generation and older. But if you really kind of start narrowing it down to people that are getting married, probably seven out of 10 that go down the aisle today are going to end up divorced. Now, I'm glad I want to have divorced people in our church. I want to uh, work in terms of coming alongside them to help them raise their kids healthy and and everything else because it takes more than one parent to raise kids healthy and so forth. However, the best way to hold marriage and honor among all is to help people become honorable before they get married. That's the best strategy among all. And, you know, uh, Larry, Catherine, and I have been doing uh, inner city. We've been doing, city, we've been doing university ministry since the 70s. Of all the people that my wife and I discipled uh, before we married them, there's never been a divorce, as far as I know. And, um, you know, all the people we basically said, hey, we feel like you're mature enough to get married. Let's do this thing when they wanted to get married. Of course, we, we never got involved in suggesting they do. Sometimes we got involved in suggesting they don't <laughs> uh, when there was a lot of immaturity in one or, or both. So that may seem stupid, but, but listen, if we can do that, if we can do that with university students, if we can say, hey, now that you've come to Christ, I would encourage you not to court and get into a serious relationship with the opposite sex until you get to a certain level of maturity. Can you imagine the power of that? When you, where you're unleashing onto the culture hundreds of good marriages eventually? Because right now we have hundreds of bad marriages. Do you know there are lots and lots of people in their early 20s that have actually never known a healthy married couple? Like every model of adults they've known are unhealthy. How are you supposed to help a young couple uh, become healthy when they don't have any healthy role models in their church and in their neighborhood. You can't. You, you've got to see healthy modeled. So, um, you know, a lot of, of well-meaning Christians 
also go to college and they major in things that will never get them a job. I would encourage you, uh, the, the, the world has changed in the 1950s and 60s, maybe even into the early 70s. It made sense to get a university education in a general field like liberal studies or something and because it meant you could think better, write, write, write better, understand philosophy and reason better. The world has changed so that you really shouldn't buy a university education that's not going to give you a vocational direction. Does that make sense? I hope you hear that. Like, don't spend anywhere from going to Sinclair thirty or forty thousand dollars by the time you might be done. Well, not probably twenty thousand with an associate's degree to maybe up to a hundred thousand dollars you might spend by the time you graduate Wright State. Don't do that if it's not going to open doors vocationally for you. Okay, so it's, uh, you know what, if you want a general arts education, you want to study history, theology, so forth, start with Emily's foundational book list and, uh, and her uh, intermediate book list and move out from there to study theology, history and poetry, whatever you want, philosophy, I, I, you know, I bless it all. It's great. It's, I love studying that stuff, but it's not going to get you a job. <laughs> It might, it'll get you a certain amount of, of a more wisdom in life and a more rounded life and a richer, kind of a richer life intellectually and emotionally and socially, but it's, it's not going to, it's not going to uh, get you a paycheck. So the point is campus ministry, nothing could be more strategic. I would submit you this. If, if any church is thinking accurately, a, a campus ministry would be a big part of the church. To leave campus ministries to parachurch organizations, and you hope that some of the people who come through this or that parachurch organization actually go to your church on Sunday, is is really uh, very short-term thinking and won't do the be enough to change the culture. Now, um, effective fatherhood, I have, um, and that goes into the inner city ministry. There's reasons why that I can't get in. Read a, read a book by called Scam by Jesse Lee Peterson. Is that still, still on the list? Uh, read a book called Scam by Jesse Lee Peterson and uh, if as a starter. But you need to understand that our country has created a permanent culture of inner city poverty. It's neither black or white, but what it is is entitled, uh, poor poor schools, broken homes, uh, people are being raised by adults who have a lot of incredible emotional problems themselves, so they're guaranteed to have a, grow up with lots of emotional problems, because however mature you are is how mature your kids will become. Uh, and basically, um, the, the, way, the world has taken a philosophy of let's just tax uh, People who with jobs and stuff to pay for all that, but no one is no one is looking at it realistically to change it. If they wanted to have better schools, they would. They need they need massive voting voting blocks that that vote how they're told that don't think it through well and stuff. So it I believe that um, that if you can build a church that eventually has a strong enough, I mean, it'll take us 20 years to, to get Kids Rock House to where it needs to be. But if we can do that, other churches will sit up and take notice. I wish I could tell you names and places, but I've actually met with two pastors who have rich churches in suburbs that are considering moving in to our neighborhood. Their whole church. Believe me, the idea of that that happened with the fundamentalist modernist controversy, that that uh, if we that we don't get involved in social justice issues, that idea is dying so thoroughly that more and more churches are wanting to do. They're sitting there with their three and four million dollar buildings out in the suburbs, saying, "We got to start doing something about the, the permanent culture of poverty." And some of them will just send the 
a team to have little plays for kids or whatever, but some of them will get the roll up their sleeves and get thoroughly invested enough to do something. And I want to create a model that they would say, wow, let's, let's at least look at this model. I think Grace Christian Fellowship can accomplish that uh, if we think in terms of 20 years, 30 years, and if we think in terms of not wasting each day as we study, prepare, embrace character, evangelize, raise kids. Um, a lot of the kids, you know, I, I, I am so proud of Sam Mawante. Sam Mawante came to us in fifth grade, and he graduated from high school with not that great of education. And, but when he, got, when he got old enough to, to, to be on his own, he's made leaps and bounds progress in education. Last, Friday night, Sam, who piddled around with, you know, playing the piano and guitar for six or eight years and never made any progress, I finally kind of said, Sam, let's focus on this and let's learn. Friday night, Sam was sitting here playing worship songs, and, and there were six or seven people standing around worshiping with him after the Friday night. And he was playing so well, I was like, wow, that is so awesome. Now, if you don't think that's something, you haven't studied the culture of inner city poverty, because inner city families do not take their kids to soccer and basketball and, and football and baseball. They don't give their kids music lessons, and every kid should have music lessons uh, because music totally interconnects with how well you do in school and, uh, and so forth. And so for Sam to be playing the guitar like that is a major deal. And if we can eventually have the kinds of musicians that every inner city kid that comes through here has the opportunity to have music lessons through us, wow, would that be awesome? Well, hopefully that's a little, um, you know, I kind of all over the place, but focus in. Well, this is Paul's modus operandi. Paul didn't just have some random, you know, like, let's go run off to Antioch. Let's go run off to... He, he was working the most important cities of every province of the Roman Empire, and he was working from, this, from the inside of the city out. That's really another reason why I want to do inner city ministry. Now, we Christianity started around 400 years ago, and this has accelerated and accelerated and accelerated that cr most Christians, in order to do our Christianity the way we want, fled from the troubles of, of somewhere, to be free to do it somewhere. Our very nation was founded on, by, by radical Christians who were fleeing from governments that didn't allow them to practice their faith in order to establish a place where they could practice their faith. On some level, I'm for that. But what we've eventually uh, spread into, if you take an urban geography class, downtown of every city in the late 1800s to about 1920 was where the rich people lived. The reason they had those long, narrow houses is because they wanted to, people wanted to be near business, retail. They wanted to live near them. That's why we have the Oregon district and all those nice houses right near downtown, right? With the automobile, it began to reverse that. With the automobile, the church began to reverse that and flee to the suburbs. If you look at any successful church today, the successful churches are in the suburbs. They're in the periphery around the city. Almost no inner city church actually ever gets to the place where, you know, we, we only take in about 25% as much in tithes and offerings as we need. It's hard to make it in the inner city. But... If we could understand the New Testament model was to take losing dark situations and turn around and face the battle and find a way to take dominion for Christ. We can understand the, the final point in Paul's modus operandi, and that's simply this. Paul went to the cities because simply this, whatever is happening in the city is what will be happening in the suburbs. Uh, used to be, uh, you could say, a generation from now. But because of social media and all kinds of other things, now it's more like 10 years from now. Your suburban kids who go to nice, rich Catholic schools and nice, rich uh, Christian schools, so forth, they want to be like the ghetto. 
They want to talk like the ghetto, dress like the ghetto, etc. Because the, whatever's happening in the cities moves out. And it has, it, this has been a trend for more than a couple hundred years. It's not going to change overnight. That, the church can make that work. If we get radical enough and build a radical enough inner city church, that can actually move out. That's exactly what Paul did. And the proof of that is in one word, the word pagan. The word pagan in the first, second, and third century meant someone living out in the country, not in the cities of the Roman Empire. So today you would say a farmer or a rural person, right? That was the word pagan. By the fifth century, the word pagan still meant someone living out in the countrysides, but it had come to mean people who still practiced the Roman mystery cults and the, and the pagan religions because most people in the cities were followers of Christ. Okay, and today we totally mean by the word pagan, we mean someone who's following witchcraft and, or uh, Darwinism or evolution or something like that, someone who's still in darkness and doesn't know the light of Christ. That's what pagan means. And there's actually movements where people say, you know, I'm a pagan, I'm proud of being a pagan, and so forth. They know that. They know what it means. So, that, you know, today I just covered point number five on your outline, but Paul's modus operandi, if we will plant this church, it will, it will eventually have lots of married couples and lots of little kids running around. It will always have a university ministry. It will eventually have two or three university ministries at University of Dayton, Sinclair, Central State. We will eventually break off a group and send them to to Xenia area to, to uh, start one at Central State and Cedar University. We'll eventually break off a group of people and send them to Columbus to start one at Ohio State. And uh, and there's a lot of Ohio State is a perfect location like Dayton. You got Ohio State University. You got rich suburbs like Upper Arlington, and you got poor neighborhoods all right together. And you can totally do what we're doing in, in, in Dayton, even better in Columbus. So that's Paul's modus operandi. We're not, just, we're not just having church on Sunday. If you're coming here, hopefully you're coming here to get equipped to take a piece of that. And uh, that you're dreaming that, you know, I hope, I hope you're, you know, maybe should Christians fantasize? I hope you're dreaming about uh, liberating captives and preaching the gospel and and uh, seeing young, seeing kids come to Christ in such a way that that guys like Sam and Edwin become the model, and, and Davion, those, those are those are great models. Those are guys who've come to Christ, and beside that, embraced a whole lot of character and grown a whole lot. And and I want to be like them when I grow up. And that's what that's what the worldly people are looking for. They're looking for the Davions of this world, and that they can say. You know what? I'm Davion used to be like this. Now he's like this. I'd like to go on that journey. Amen. <laughs>